God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Hopefully that matched what came up on the screen. Okay. All right. Lord, today I'm going to lift up my prayers to you that you would bless this time for our children as they go to their Sunday school classes, that they learn more about you and ways to connect with you, Lord, that are so powerful and meaningful that even if they stray later, they always come back. Father, we ask that you would bless this time and Jim as he um, teaches us in all of his infinite wisdom. Uh, Lord, we love you, and we thank you so much. Amen. No sarcasm there. (laughs) We call him EP for Executive Platinum, and I'll tell you all that story another time. (laughs) We have a tradition on staff that I started. The new person gets to pray, and so Julie's been praying quite a bit. I know, but we liked it so much we kept her going. But now that Rob's on staff, she's so excited. Okay, before we start, uh, on the back of the bulletin, a couple of things. One is we have the first family night coming up on the January 17th. And so uh, RSVP to Julie um, or any of the cab, Children's Advisory Board, so they have enough food. And uh, I'd encourage you to come. I don't care if you're young, old, have lots of kids, I don't have any kids. Just come watch the energy of our families. I try to get out there two or three times a year. It's pretty fabulous. So come to that. Second thing is on Grief Share, this, uh, right there, if you're, uh, you know, when, uh, when my first wife died many, many years ago, we didn't have all these things like Grief Share. And uh, I didn't really know what I was doing. I just had to navigate it. And it was hard. It's very complex, as many of you know. It's not an easy journey. But I didn't really have a way to, somebody to help me walk that road. So I'm so thankful for this ministry. And that's tonight. It says 6.30 to 8.30, but they changed the time to 2 to 4 p.m. So if you're in that, come. And if, if you're... If you're wrestling through grief, and it could be grief for any reason whatsoever, maybe you lost a job, maybe you lost somebody, a friend, or somebody close to you, uh, this is worth looking at. It's worth considering. Okay, And there's other plenty of things in there you can take a look at and um, uh, find various ministries there. Okay, so today we are talking about work and rest. <clears throat> We're in a series for or against, learning how to think with integrity. And so you may wonder, work and rest? Is it that hard to figure out? Well, it's actually a very challenging, very challenging area of politics, a very challenging area of the way our culture thinks. And this is one of those places where we as Christians really shine because we have something very significant to contribute. Listen to these headlines just in the last couple of weeks. These headlines. For suicide prevention, try raising minimum wage. Apparently, money will help with lowering suicide. Want to help Red America? Increase the minimum wage. Small business owners fearful over possible minimum wage increase. Apparently, if we increase minimum wage, then businesses might go out of business. I don't know. Raising the minimum wage by just $1 could literally save lives. 
New Hampshire House votes to double the minimum wage to $15. Minimum wage hikes hurt the poor more than they help. Iowa could see negative economic impacts of the surrounding states raising their own minimum wage. One owner expects to lose 40000 this year due to the state's increased minimum wage. Cultural stress, a modern threat to health. Cultural influences the way people experience depression. The list goes on and on. Boy, is this complicated? Yeah, it's complicated. Do we have people on different sides of the fence? Yes, we do. I did a search just to see. I did, I combined the words stress and health. 714 million hits. This is a big topic. It's a very big topic. Where do we start? Well, last week we kind of recalibrated, so let me just summarize that and tell you what we laid down as our two foundational principles, Mark and I did. And yes, we're going to keep throwing Mark under the bus. Last thing he said to me last night when he left was, keep throwing me under the bus. I said, oh, I will, don't worry. So for those of you that keep up with him, just text him and let him know I'm doing a good job. <laughs> we Way back in the fall, then we touched on it again last week. There are two linchpins, two foundational building blocks we need to always keep in mind. One is dignity. Every human has dignity. That comes by being virtue of creation, being made in the image of God. Dignity, every person, every human has dignity. It doesn't matter how opposed they, you, they are to what you think. It doesn't matter, matter how hostile or how militant they are. They have dignity and they're worthy of respect. They're worthy of having the conversation with. And have conversations. And I, you know, I love to op- uh, take the opposite approach sometimes. That's the educator in me doing it in the classroom. So I was recently at a birthday party for one of my relatives. And um, they, uh, five of them were having this conversation. I just happened to be part of it. I'm not sure how I ended up there. Anyway, they were very, uh, very, what we would consider politically liberal. And they were just on and on and on in their stuff. And so I thought, well, here's a fun, here's a fun, fun time waiting to happen. So I just th- gently threw out the question. So uh, do you trust the press? And they all said, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I said, oh, okay. So five minutes later in a conversation, one of them brought up some facts. And I said, so where'd you learn that? Oh, I learned it from name your favorite news source. Well, I thought you just said you don't trust the press. Uh, so after about the 25th time of asking them, so where did you get that data? Now they're going. Because they only had really one option. So one of them is an attorney and said to me, how do you... Get your information. So I told him the process that I go through, because I am an academic. And he said, that's a lot of work. Well, yes. To quote Denzel Washington, because he's a, you know, really big in politics and theology. He said, I love it. I heard him when I was in Cambridge, England. And he said in the, to the press, if you don't listen to the media, you're uninformed. If you do, you're misinformed. <laughs> I just love that. And so I had this great hour and a half conversation and they were, they were all dancing all around trying to, trying to convince me of their way. So we got done and, and we laughed the whole time. We laughed. And we had so much fun. 
And I asked them at the end, I said, was this okay? And they said, yeah, we wish we could have more conversations like that. And I said, here's the interesting thing. You don't actually really know what I believe. You only know what I argued. And they go... Because that's what I do in the classroom. The last day of each semester, I tell the students, you don't really know what I believe. You only know what I argued. And so dignity is so important in this discussion. It's so important in all of our relationships because it has something to say about how we, how we respect and treat each other. You want to have, you can turn any of these conversations into fun and enjoyable conversations if you just simply show respect and quit trying to persuade others. People love to talk about it. You know what they love? They love to talk about our president. They do, everywhere I go. They don't want to fight. So I've enjoyed that. Dignity. But the second one has to do with a flourishing community. God created us to be in relationship in a very healthy and safe way. We've talked quite a bit about that. And each of these topics from here on out, we're going to come back to how do these contribute to a flourishing community? We understand what the Bible says about these topics. Then we can, we can move in that direction. And furthermore, we can have great impact with our friends right here, our neighbors, about how to live together at peace, to live together in harmony and have a lot of fun with these discussions and tackle our own local problems. The problems that we face with everything from mental illness to the poor. We can continue to grow in our ability to reach out and solve these problems. But we have to have both those framework, those ideas in mind. Everyone's worthy of dignity and we are here to generate a flourishing community. All right. So to get into the discussion. Let's remember that language is important. We're going to talk about work and rest. Language is important. For example, stay-at-home wives. Is that work? If you think raising children is work, raise your hand. Oh, good. I'm really glad. Then why is that devalued in our culture? You ever think about that? Why is that devalued? As is true with all of these topics, failure to accurately define the language leads to oppression. That's always going to be true because we're going to use it against one another. So we have to ask the question, what is work? And how should we assign value to work? That is a pure biblical concept that we're going to talk about. Do moms and dads staying at home receive the same level of honor as a CEO, CFO? It's interesting, when uh, Nancy and I married many years ago, she, uh, she's an electrical engineer, went to CSU, was one of just a small handful at that time of women, and she specialized in power. So I met her in a power plant. We worked at... Fort St. Vrain Nuclear Generating Station and Nuclear Engineering, that's where we met. And uh, even back then, there were very few women working. So uh, my first wife, Judy, and I used to pray for her. And uh, 
So I had been engaging her with discussions about Christ. And uh, Judy went to be with the Lord, and then Nancy came to know Christ. And so we fell in love and got married. And she came to our church, which is a new experience for her. Um, so she started going to our church, and after it didn't take very long, and she said, I'm not sure the women actually really like me. Well, why do you say that? And she said, because I'm not a teacher or a nurse. I'm an engineer. That was one of those pivot points in my theology because I started paying attention as a very young elder and she was spot on. We assigned value to women who were teachers and nurses, but not to women as a man's job. Now we are talking a few years ago, but that still persists, that tendency for us to assign value based on what we think is legitimate. And, and in the process, oppress people and in, be very inappropriate. If it's true, if we actually think that what women do at home with work is important, then answer this question. Why? Why? For the wives who work outside the home, okay, so we are both working outside the home. I work full-time for you. She works full-time for the utility. In that situation, and all across our country, why do those women spend an average of 15 to 27 hours per week more than the men on housework? Why is that? You see, we gotta, not only do we have an issue in defining what work is, using the right language, we have an issue in the concept of what marriage is all about. It's popular today to talk about marriage. Here's a little, a little bunny trail here. It's popular to talk about marriage in terms of negotiation, right? Um, compromise. That's evil. You want to know the biblical concept of marriage? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. What's one thing that Christ did in his own best interest? You'll search long and hard. It's called sacrifice. Christian marriages need to be defined in terms of sacrifice, not compromise and negotiation. So why are we there? Where is there dignity in that? Where? That our wives work, even if they're working outside the family, they work more at home. So when Nancy went back to work, four or five years ago, she came to me and said, well, 30 years ago, I left the engineering field to raise you and four kids. Done a pretty good job. You guys are all doing okay. I'm going back to work. Okay. She got an engineering job, went back to work for Excel Energy. But then she said, but I'm a little nervous because who's going to take care of all the work that I usually do at home? I said, I don't know. We'll figure it out. <laughs> and I'm trying to learn to cook. <laughs> Just so you know, when if we invite any of you over for dinner, it's the night that she's cooking. Okay. Lots of things I've learned about chores that I didn't know. And I asked her at one point, is this what it was like for you with four kids at home? She just pats me on the arm and says, better late than never. And we're trying to learn how to share the load. So she's not doing more. And more and more that I learn, I try to find ways to jump in and sacrifice so that she doesn't have to. Is there dignity in, in expecting our women to spend 20 extra hours a week in house chores more than the men when we're both working out? Where's the dignity in that? You see the problem with failing to develop a good theology and, and poor, being poor use of our language? And so that raises the question, what actually is work?
I've been reading a book by Tim Keller, Every Good Endeavor. Here's where he starts. The Bible begins talking about work as soon as it begins talking about anything. I love that. That is how important and basic it is. The author of the book of Genesis describes God's creation of the world as work. As work. In fact, he depicts the magnificent project of cosmos invention with a regular work week of seven days. That's the language he uses. And then he shows us human beings working in paradise. This, that's Adam and Eve, by the way. They're at work. This view of work connected with divine, orderly creation and human purpose is distinct among the great faiths and belief systems of the world. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. He goes on. The creation narrative in the book of Genesis is unique among the ancient accounts of the origins of all that we see. Many cultures had stories that depicted the beginning of the world in human history as the result of a struggle between warring cosmic forces. For example, in the Babylonian creation story, known as the Enuma Elish, the god Marduk overcomes the goddess Tiamat and forges the world out of her remains. In this and similar accounts, the visible universe was an uneasy balance of powers in tension with one another. And this is because, pause for a moment, because we had a strong, all the ancient religions and today have a strong correspondence between us and the gods. We're sexual beings, they must be too. Our story is very different. So if you have male and female gods, there obviously has to be warring going on. Men fight each other. Men and women have tension. In the Bible, however, creation is not the result of a conflict, for God has no rivals. Indeed, all the powers and beings of heaven and earth are created by him and dependent on him. Creation, then, is not the aftermath of a battle, but the plan of a craftsman. This is our story. God made the world not as a warrior digs a trench, but as an artist who makes a masterpiece. God worked for the sheer joy of it. Work was not a necessary evil that came into the picture later, or something human beings were created to do, but that was beneath God. Remember the ancient gods, you better work harder. or you'll suffer my wrath. And our God said, you work hard enough. Let's take a break. We'll call that the Sabbath. God worked for the sheer joy of it. Work could not have a more exalted inauguration. That's the foundation for our understanding of what work and rest is all about. God not only works, but he finds pleasure in work. Look in Genesis 1. You heard some of this read this morning. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. See that? That's a craftsman. It's an artist. It was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all of their vast array. This is the God that we serve. Let's have fun. Let's make something. 
And let's smile at it. Genesis 2, though, shows us that God not only works in order to create, but he wants to care for his creation as well. Genesis 2.7, creates humans. Genesis 2, 6 and 8, he plants a garden for the humans and then waters it. Genesis 2.21, he makes a, compa- a command, uh, excuse me, companion for the man, a wife. He cares for the world, according to Psalm 104, by watering and cultivating the ground. Psalm 145, he helps those who are suffering and cares for the needs of... This is the foundation for us as we understand what work is all about. Okay? We're created for work. We're made for it. Genesis one twenty six. God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they too may rule over the fish in the sea. He made us. We have dignity, like him, to rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. He blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, basically over all creation, just like I do. That's what God says. That's what we're made for. This is our purpose. The concept of subduing the earth reveals a couple of very important things in understanding work. Number one is that the creation was still largely undeveloped. In other words, he left us a challenge. You know, when I thank the Lord most days for the food that I eat, I just thank the Lord and I say, thank you for making me to love food and then giving it to me. It's the same with work. Thank you for making us love accomplishing something significant and then giving us the challenge to do it. No other creation story has this information in it. None. We are very unique. But the second thing it tells us is that um, this concept of subduing has the idea of completing, helping creation fulfill its purpose. So the creation, for example, cannot fulfill its purpose without us. It can't feed us without us cultivating it. So Genesis 2.15, look what he says. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it to till the soil, to care for it. So he created this partnership between us and creation. We talked about this earlier. You can go back a few sermons and see this whole question on environmentalism and eco uh, ecology. And so he made us for that. That's what our role is, is to help the creation fulfill its purpose by working together with it. Work is not a necessary evil. It was part of paradise. It's part of our created design. It's not some form of punishment. That's not what work is all about. Jesus reminds us that work is part of God's ongoing and perfect plan in John 5. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. That's going to raise the question of what what is rest all about? When God rested, does that mean he quit working and went fishing? No, even the Jewish rabbis knew that wasn't the case. The reason why they knew that is because on the Sabbath, people were born and people died. They believed in sovereignty. So God was still very much at work. So rest means something very different than what we think of. 
that influences, by the way, the way you might view retirement. Work is a basic human need. It's a basic human need, such as food, rest, friendship, prayer. We need to accomplish something, and God created us for this very purpose. Work is not the problem. The curse is. That's the problem. The curse. It's not work. I love working. I love it. So what is rest? That raises the question. After after creating, God rested on the seventh day, Genesis 2. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, he rested from all the work of creating what he had done. If you think of work as the absence of activity, then you're misunderstanding. I mean, if you think of rest, then you're misunderstanding rest. Because God, the Bible is very clear that God still works. He holds the universe together by his hands. And he takes good care of us every day, every day of the week, not just six days. So we have to do a little bit of work understanding rests. What it means is that he stopped creating and took time to enjoy the creation. That's what it means. He built something and then he begins to engage it and play with it and make it happen. That's what rest was. He didn't stop. That means he took on a different part of the responsibility. Here we have a basic definition of Sabbath. When you talk about Sabbath, taking time to celebrate and enjoy the goodness of what has been created. Listen to that again. Taking time to celebrate and enjoy the goodness of what has been created. Created. Our heritage is unique. What we believe as Christians is very unique in world history. Following the pattern of God, we have a model of combining work and rest and ongoing patterns in our life. They go together. They belong together. They fit together. This is an essential part of human flourishing that the world simply does not understand. We honestly don't know how to solve the problem in our culture. Every study shows that the increased stress is creating health problems. We don't know how to rest. All we know how to do is keep pushing the accelerator to the floor to work harder. That's all we know. It's an essential part of human flourishing because it had financial ramifications. When you look at all the ancient cultures around Israel, they worked their slaves seven days a week. Slave wears out, no big deal, just get another one. See, slaves were my, if I'm the owner, they're my property. So if I have a male slave and a female slave and they have a birth of a child, the child belongs to me. I could sell the father to someone else and I can keep the mother and the children. Or I could sell the mother and keep the father and the children. Or I could sell the children, their property. They're, they're, they're widgets. And so they work their slaves seven days a week. And along comes God and says, take a day off. Imagine the financial ramifications of not earning money for seven days. Furthermore, you have the whole question of what's going to happen to my crops and my flocks. The same thing, we're going to come to festivals and feasts in just a minute. The same principle. What happens to my crops if I'm not going to work? I've got to be out there working. God said, no, I want you to rest. I will take care of your crops. 
Now translate that into the modern business world. I will take care of your business. Okay, That's what rest, that's how it comes in. Sabbath comes into it. This forms a foundation for our work week and our culture. It also becomes a very essential part of our worship service, which we'll talk about in just a minute. That's why Jesus could claim in Matthew 12 and other places that, that the Sabbath was made for us, not us for the Sabbath. It was made for us. God gave it to us as a gift, this concept of rest, enjoyment. He gave it to us as a gift. We flourish when we have a healthy cycle of creation and celebration of work and rest. When we create this cycle, then we begin to flourish and smile and laugh and accomplish more and more and more. So what are the core elements of rest in Scripture? Well, understand two basic ideas. Work is instrumental. We're accomplishing something. But rest is non-instrumental. It's focusing on something. Okay? So you understand the basics, right? Work is accomplishing something. Uh, by the way, you notice I haven't brought in the whole question of yet of how much you get paid. Work is what you do. Sometimes you get paid for it. When does gardening move from a hobby to a career? When does playing guitar move from something to lead people to the primary way you earn money? See what I mean? So you have to go, go back and disconnect work from making a living. And think of how God created us. So rest involves two things. Celebration and rejuvenation. If you have both of those, then you will experience rest. If you're missing them, you won't. So the concept of celebration is what happens in worship. When we remember all that God has done and is doing. That's what was designed to do up here. How many of you enjoyed the worship this morning? Let's see. Yeah, right. Thank you. Okay. It's a time in the week when we come together as a community of faith, a flourishing community, and we just pause and set all the stresses aside. And we relax. And just for a brief period of time, we remember God and what He has done for us and cultivate that sense of gratitude. Thank you, God, for who you are. But rejuvenation has another whole piece to it in Scripture. You see, rejuvenation was captured by all the Jewish festivals. There were several. There were three that they all had to come for, but they could come for all of them if they wanted. There were several of them. And so picture this. You live in another country, and you're required to come to Jerusalem for the Festival of Tabernacles, Festival of Booths, to celebrate God taking care of the Israelites in the desert. The festival alone is eight days. Then you have the travel time. Hop on your donkey. So you probably have two or three weeks at least that you're away from your crops, your businesses, your trade. Who's going to take care of them? The Lord said, I'll take care of them. Because it's important for you to come and enjoy each other. That is a uniquely Christian principle. In contrast to all the other religions where you work harder and harder. God says, no, come together. The rabbis tell us that the music went on 24 hours a day. The dancing, the partying. One of my friends has a church and his website is the party church. Something good about that. Something theological about that. This is why we should get together and feast. It's captured in the language of feasts. 
You ever notice how Jesus did a whole lot of work around the feast? First of all, he never turned down a good meal or a good drink. Okay? And he showed up at every one that, that the Bible talks about. He was there, right up front. And that's where he often talked to people, taught them. Why? Because they're working the rest of the time. So he taught them. Feeding of the 5,000, feeding of the 4,000. He taught them around food. That's when they gathered. So feasts are the time set aside to intentionally delight, marvel, celebrate, rejoicing at what God has made. So worship leads us to reflect on who he is and create within us a grateful heart. And feasting together, feasting together allows us to pause and celebrate what he has made. They go together. This is the basic definition of rest. That is what communion is about. Communion from the beginning all the way back to the Passover involves food and drink. Passover feast. So it was in the early church. They broke bread every day, Acts 2 says. House to house. Why? Because they ate together every day. So he picked two of the most basic elements I've long said, I'm grateful that God made me to like food and gives it to me. So when I eat, I'm reminded every meal of the goodness of the Lord. That's where we came up with the tradition of thanking God in prayer, is to cultivate that thankful heart. Okay, what what does this mean for us? Let me give you a couple of thoughts. Every human, I believe, should have access to and be, and be engaged in some meaningful work. Every human. We should work diligently to make sure that every human finds value in what they do. It should create meaning for the one working. It should be enjoyable. And now I'm talking to those who have either your own business or leadership or in authority. It should not be tyrannical. We have enough tyrants in the world. We don't need you to be a tyrant. Okay? From the very beginning, when I came here, I started a tradition with the staff. I have a staff meeting every week. And um, if my staff doesn't show up, I never worry about it. I simply don't worry. Because they're doing something more important, which could be sleeping. There are from time to time when I send my staff home, just go, go, go fishing. I said that to Mark more than once. Go, go get on your bike and get out of here. You're driving me crazy. Not quite that way. <laughs> go relax. And so if somebody doesn't show up at the staff meeting, they say, you know, where's Mark? I don't know. He's doing something more important. I don't ever worry about it. Well, the elders asked me if I ever have a staff meeting where nobody shows up. They have once. Showed up with my great devotion and nobody came. Right? You know what I did? I went back, made a pot of coffee, propped my feet up on my desk, and got two hours of research and studying in. It was fantastic. Don't be a tyrant. Don't be a tyrant. Every human needs to find meaning in what they're accomplishing. If they're employed for pay, they should receive adequate remuneration. Jesus himself said in Luke 10 that the laborer is worthy of his wages. That becomes the, the, the uh, proof text in 1 Timothy 5 about elders who work well at preaching and teaching. They're worthy of their wages. Thank you, by the way, for paying my salary. You do that. You bring me joy. And on behalf of all of our staff, thank you. Because you bring us joy. I think our economic policy ought to prioritize access to employment. I think it should. 
far more than profitability. I think that ought to be a key. Now, I'm not sure how to do that. It's not my field. But I will tell you this. I was in, uh, I was in India at the airport with my really good friend who's translated for me over the years. And so um, I take my bag up, and the guy takes my bag out of my hands, turns, and hands it to a second guy. This guy puts it on the conveyor belt. That's two guys now. Goes through the little x-ray machine. Third guy picks it up, hands it to a fourth guy. So we're up to four. The fourth guy hands it to a fifth guy on a conveyor belt. He opens it up and looks inside. Then that goes down. He hands it off to a sixth guy who puts it all back together and zips it closed. There's a supervisor here. That's number seven. And there's a supervisor here. That's number eight. Eight guys. So I asked my friend, what's with that? I mean, being a good American, you could be a lot more efficient with just one. And you looked at me like I was born on another planet and said, what would the other seven do for employment? A whole different way of looking at the world. Now, I'm not saying their way's right. Don't hear that. I'm saying that this ought to be part of our discussion. You want to have a good discussion on our work? Talk about how, how we employ everybody and take care of them. Because that is our fundamental responsibility as a culture. We should recognize and value non-paid work just as much as paid work. We should be grateful when we come over to somebody's house and see a beautiful garden. When we walk in and Rob's playing in his office, playing his guitar. When, whatever it is, you remodel your own house because you have the skills. We should rejoice in that just as much as what you get paid for. They should be equal in value. We should raise our women up and exalt them for the fantastic work they are doing with our children. That's what we should do. We should raise them up with higher value than a CEO, I think. We should ensure that every worker has the opportunity to rest. What a difference it would make in our culture if we didn't have to negotiate vacation packages. If we could just say to people, take some time. Your spouse is sick. Take some time and go be with them. Go rest. Go rest. One of the ways we've blessed people in our church is a couple of years, three or four years ago, the staff was talking and we created a budget line item for the people in our church who have retired and moved away, but they invested 20 or 30 years here. We, inv- we put in a budget line item for one of us to fly down if they die or get seriously ill. So Mark and I and Jude have flown all over the country to bless people that invested so much of their life right here. Do you want to be astonished? Look in their eyes when we show up and they're no longer at our church. We should bless people. And finally, we should resist the cultural ideas of what the culture defines as rest. TV, movies, entertainment, gaming. You have to understand There is a vast difference between distraction and rest. Watching TV is not rest. Watching TV is a distraction. You know how to rest? Sit down and engage the two things we talked about, worship and feasting in community with each other. Talk about what the Lord is doing. We have some people in our church that are right near the end of life if the Lord doesn't intervene. And we're having those conversations. What does faith look like? What is God doing? It recalibrates us. And that's when we can rest. And then the distracting things become fun. Don't use 
TV and entertainment and gaming. Don't use that as a means of avoiding the tension. It just means you're delaying it, that's all. Sit and have the conversation at your table. So what does work work like for you? Where do you see the Lord? How do our values as Christians get lived out here? Have the conversation with your families. One last question. Do you see what you do in the workplace as accomplishing something good? I don't care if you're a plumber or electrician. I don't care if you're a CEO, an architect. It doesn't matter to me. When you do what God has created you to do, do you see it as bringing honor and glory to the Lord? I remember having a conversation with Walter Woronsky. Walter, when you repair a broken pipe, do you have a sense that the Lord is smiling because you just did what he created you to do? That's true. I have a wonderful wife. She loves to cook. It's so fun listening to her walk around the kitchen, whistling, singing, humming, humming to herself, making food, which is great because I like to eat. Right? So not too long ago, she's cooking, and she's singing to herself, and I said, you cook like I do theology. And she looks up and she goes, I make things up? <laughs> do you smile and whistle at the things you do? You have to reorient your thinking, even if you're under a tyrant, to remember you bring honor to the Lord it doesn't matter how mundane it feels to you. The Lord is grinning because you're accomplishing something that's important to him. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for showing us, modeling for us, that work and rest go together. Making things, creating things, accomplishing things, doing things, all of that is so delightful to you. You love it when we do it. Sometimes it feels hard to us. We get yelled at. We get demanded to do more, produce more, all of that. But the bottom line is you're sitting there grinning, grinning because of what we do. And Lord, I know, I am convinced that we can help our county understand this better. I'm convinced of it. Help us to continue to build that flourishing community that this culture wants to run to. In your son's name, amen. I'm going to ask the ushers to come take the offering. Thank you for...